Good evening, listeners. It's October 8th, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Kristen Finch. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature their research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at Oregon State and interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at OSU, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests, and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight we're joined by Bjorn Christensen, and he's from the School of History, Philosophy, and Religion. Bjorn? Thanks for having me. All right, Bjorn. Well, welcome to the studio, and we're glad to have you. We want to hear a little bit about what you do at Oregon State. Yeah, so I'm in the Applied Ethics uh, Master's program here, um, and my research focuses on ethical issues having to do with clean meat, uh, which is also known as cellular agriculture or cultured meat. Okay, and so explain to me a little bit about how you would uh, derive this clean meat. Yeah, so um, clean meat is just, uh, I can talk a little bit more about that name um, in a little bit, but it's cultured meat, which is... Basically, what we're doing is we're growing meat in a cell culture instead of inside animals. Um, so the people that work in culture and meat are coming from a background typically in uh, medical regenerative engineering. So um, there's already a wide amount of research done in this, but recently it's just been started uh, to be applied to, uh, to produce food, not just organs. For yeah. And so what type of cells can you use to make a animal muscle? Um, so you you can take them from a variety of sources. Uh, oftentimes they're coming from like uh, fetal serum. Um, that's that's a common one. Um, that's going to result obviously in harm to animals. But there are also uh, some companies uh, such as Hampton Creek, which are producing uh, clean meat through a process where they can, for example, they just took the cells from a chicken's feather and they were able to synthesize that and create clean meat that way. And so that removes all animal suffering. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's in in a hypothetical future where we had uh, meat that was produced um, simply in a laboratory rather than in a rather than through an animal being raised and then killed in a slaughterhouse, uh, there would be no live animals in that process. But the meat that we that results from that would be identical structurally and hopefully in terms of flavor and experience as well. So I'm I'm coming at it actually uh, relatively new to the regenerative medicine idea because I need a new hip, uh, hip and ball socket joint. <laughs> yeah, someday. And their issue that they're finding is they cannot in the lab recreate this, which is a limitation from uh, uh, from medical perspective. But what we're finding now is that some advancements is that we can culture meat so that there is no more uh, animal harm. But what are some of the other benefits of uh, cultured meat or clean meat? Yeah, so um, I think now's the time just to talk about the, the term clean meat um, and, and what goes into that. So I like the term clean meat. Um, it's It's been kind of touted by uh, this organization called the Good Food Institute. And they say that 
it describes better what what this product is than just saying cultured. Cultured has all kinds of like, you know, people don't like the term cultured. It might denote something fake or artificial. Lab meat sounds even worse, maybe. But clean meat, uh, in the same sense as you might talk about clean energy, um, the way that we raise, the way that we create meat now in the food system is incredibly energy intensive. Um, very wasteful to grow food to then feed to animals, which you then have to feed for their term of their life. You have to supply them water as well during that time. It's not. Uh, it's definitely not a clean way of of raising food. Um, in addition, uh, another great benefit I think that is it should seem obvious is that it um, avoids a lot of the issues with food contamination. So we're not going to have issues with E. coli contamination, for example, with clean meat. Um, it's going to avoid a lot of diseases that are just inherent to raising animals in, in, in intensive operations. Um, but the third kind of benefit that I like, in addition, which isn't really talked about as much, is I think that uh, clean can be understood as a clean conscience. Because I think that the way that we raise, the way that we're, the relationship that we have with the planet and the relationship we have with animals in the current food system is just not who we are. And I don't think it represents um, the best of humanity. And so clean meat represents um, a way where we can feel good about the way that we produce the food that we eat. And so what's kind of the time frame and the price that goes into producing clean meat? So it's it's definitely still in its like, you know, it's infancy. It's uh, and it, you know, the process of uh, the research has been around for a while, um, but it's still pretty expensive at this point in time. One of the primary hindrances is that the medium to grow these cells in is very expensive. It's it's pharmaceutical grade. Um, some of the facilities that could produce this are similar to the way that we would grow uh, pharmaceutical medicine right now. So very costly. Um, the first cultured meat burger that was produced in 2013 was estimated to cost around $300,000. Wow. So it's not, yeah, it's not, not cheap, but... Um, Prices have dropped quite a bit um, just in the, in the last four years. And there are some companies such as Hampton Creek, which I already mentioned, and I, was, I just visited there a couple days ago and saw their facilities. And they are, they are promising that next year they're going to have a product on store shelves. Yeah. And I, I want to ask, is this, is this culture meat, does it taste any different? Does it look any different? Well, uh, yeah, the product that they produced in 2013, from what I've heard um, in terms of people that, that tried it, uh, it was not the same. Um, and, and so it's not that's – part of, that's part of the process as well is that really making sure that this tastes the same, has the same texture, that the experience is identical. Um, and so that's just as important um, in terms of research. But uh, as you were talking about in terms of regenerative uh, – producing organs or regenerative medicine. Um, one of the hindrances to that is that in terms of creating organs, you need those organs to work um, if, you're, if it's going to be put into a human. Um, but with culturing of animal flesh for consumption, uh, I think like you obviously don't need it to work. You just need to have the same kind of texture and experience of, of consumption. So those blood vessels don't actually have to work. They just have to look and feel the same. So I think that, uh, I think it's going to be, I, I, I don't think it's that far off. Yeah. And I think that, um, I actually read about this $300,000 hamburger and, yeah. uh, I think the main complaint was that it just was so lean. 
it had no fat because <laughs> it was muscle <laughs> tissue only. And that's another thing about these uh, clean meat options is they don't require antibiotics because there are going to be no diseases. They don't require artificial growth hormones and they can be lean. Plus, if you wanted to, you could add put additives in which yeah. would kind of make the taste better. Yeah, similar to the way that we've created certain crops that have higher nutritional you know, components than the conventional crops would have had. Um, that could be done with cultured meat as well, with clean meat as well. Um, you could produce meat that is much healthier um, than the current meat. Yeah. And so uh, I know for, obviously for human consumption, the, the Hampton Creek and other companies are, are making these meats available for us to try, but uh, what other areas could benefit from clean meat availability? Yeah, so my research, um, including the paper that I presented um, in the Netherlands uh, last month um, at the International Conference on Cultured Meat, was looking at the ways that we might apply uh, clean meat to uh, non-human animals. So, for example, pets that consume um, animal-based foods, um, such as cats. And so I think that's a very promising uh place to look into because uh, when I did the numbers, um, I came up to, like I did the math and I uh, came out to a number around of the house cats in the United States consume roughly the same caloric intake as 11 million humans. So um, if, if they're consuming a diet that has more meat than most humans eat, then that diet's going to have more environmental impact. It's going to have more impact in terms of animal cruelty. Um, and this is something that not very many people are looking into. So I felt like it was an avenue that had to be explored. And not just uh, pets, but I also think uh, animals in captive situations like in zoos and aquariums or even animals in wildlife rehabilitation centers. So, uh, for example, like many, many rehab centers have like birds of prey that they're rescuing and they have to raise mice to then feed to those birds. And if there was a way that we could reduce suffering, at least in the time when we had those animals in our care, um, it seems like clean meat is a very promising way to do that. So not only is there an environmental benefit, because as I'm reading on our blog, uh, each pound of meat uh, is requires 57 gallons of water, 70 square acres of land. I mean, an enormous you know environmental inputs are required yeah. for, for and that's meat. a conservative estimate. Um, some places will say as many as 2000 gallons of water is used to produce just one hamburger. So it varies from place to place. But, yeah, it's incredibly energy intensive. So then on, on that note, I mean, because – so this is, I think, where we get into the crux of your research is, you know, how do we frame domesticated animals, especially if we, you know, if we have the ability to, to generate meat and food for them, don't we have the obligation to, to limit other suffering of other animals? Um, I think so. Um, I don't think that a lot of people think about human agency in terms of like causing suffering on animals as being unique. Um, but if you look into like even the suffering of a wild animal, um, it doesn't seem that it really matters a whole lot to them whether it's caused by a human or whether it's caused by another animal. So while it may not be possible for us to step in and, you know, stop all suffering in the wild, for example, that would have all kinds of unforeseen, um, you know, results. But when we have these animals in captivity, um, it seems like we have sort of an obligation not just to care for them, but to balance that care with also uh, reducing the suffering that would be caused by their diet. 
And so I think that this makes a point that this is an ethical issue. And since you're, uh, this is what you do. Can yeah. you explain and kind of break down like what are really the the problems that make this or make this an ethical conundrum? Um, well, I mean, just basically, ethics is asking questions about how we should act in the world and what what are what's the right and wrong kind of way of of, of responding to certain issues. Um, a lot of people might address this issue by just saying, "Well, we should consider how we can bring about the best result." Um, that's kind of a utilitarian approach. Like it doesn't matter how we get there. If we, in the long run, reduce suffering, uh, that's the right course of action. Um, now, I'll just maybe go back to the discussion of the research of culture meat just for a moment here uh, because there are fundamental breaks in terms of the approach just to the research. So some people, um, such as like those doing research at Maastricht University, Mark Post is the guy that created that first hamburger, are taking – the uh, the cells from fetal um, serum. So they are killing animals to take these cells to then produce cultured meat. Now, in the long run, that's going to result in a reduction in suffering. So if you're taking just a pure utilitarian approach, you would say, of course, that's the right, that's the right uh, thing to do. Hard to say that it's not better than the alternative. But there are others, um, such as those at Finless Foods and Hampton Creek, which are looking into this in a different way. They're saying... If we can, if we can do this without causing harm in the process as well, why wouldn't we do that? Um, and it may make it more difficult, but if we don't do that, it's going to forever taint this product. We're always going to have that kind of guilt associated with it, and it's going to represent kind of something that's not really in line with who we are. So that would be why Hampton Creek was more concerned about how they got it too. They weren't. It wasn't just doing the right thing. It was doing the right thing in the right way. So, for example, taking a feather from an animal that fell out of that animal, causing no pain or suffering to that animal, and then producing cultured meat through that process. Yeah. So the, the idea that you had earlier of having a clean conscience, uh, can you describe how you arrived to, to this idea? Because I think it's really powerful in a way that can cause some to produce actions, such as, you know, you know to try and stay away from beef if they can and then slowly take away chicken and so on. So, like, how did you come to this, you know, I want to have a clean conscience? And, like, what was that development like? Um, specifically, like, in terms of animals or I guess that's a pretty big question. So <laughs> I guess uh, I think that how we are relating to animals and the planet at large, I guess, uh, right now is not really in line with who we are. And we spend probably a lot of time trying to ignore that. And so when I think about the food system that I used to be, I mean, we're all part of the same food system. It's very difficult to escape. But if I think about the way that I used to relate to food, I wasn't thinking about the pain and suffering that was going into that product I was buying. It was distant. It was kind of disconnected from, you know, it's packaged into this neat package. You don't really see the animal that went into it's de-individualized you're not it's you don't you don't have a face to connect with that but if we had to if we had to see that entire process every time we purchase that product um, i don't think that most people would say that represents who they are and i don't think that most people really want to be part of that now it's very difficult to escape that right now um i would say that you know it's a good a good decision would be to to not consume animal products. Um, but I also think that it's difficult to say that that's going to happen overnight. And so I think a good 
thing to support in addition to just ending consumption of animal products widely is to support this research because then there's 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 not going to be any excuses. We're going to escape that and I think that the food system is going to be more in line with with who we are. And we've really yeah. talked about some of the benefits already, but there are really four main pillars of clean meat that uh, and the benefits that come from this. Could you unpack those? Um, yeah, so I guess I said a few of those already, let me think. So obviously the environmental the environmental impact is probably the biggest one. Um, you know, meat as it's meat even in terms of local and like grass fed is typically seen as being more envir- environmentally friendly. It, depending on how you look at it, it can actually be worse. So um, it's almost impossible to think about raising animals in a way that's sustainable, um, especially in the terms of the numbers of people we have in the population, the current um, way that we consume animal products. So the environmental impact is a huge component. Um, in addition, um, I think something like I've already brought up a couple times is just animal suffering is, is, is a huge element of this. Um, this would, depending on who you're talking to, um, as I said, there's fundamental differences in the way to approach this research, but this would hopefully eliminate the, the animals that we currently have in the food system. It would do away with animal cruelty, at least in terms of animals raised for food. And so that's, that's a really important component and safety, I think was the third one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, Obviously, it's going to eliminate uh, foodborne illness issues with meat. It's not you're not going to have contamination. Um, you're not going to have to worry about whether what you're consuming was potentially you know cancerous cells or whatever. It's not which that happens, um, and it's going to eliminate just any any sort of safety issues. And I guess the fourth would just be kind of like personal like our ethical kind of perspective on it would be that it's just more in line with who we are. Yeah. And for those of us just joining in, you're listening to Inspiration Dissemination, and we are joined by, by Bjorn where he just finished describing all the, the major benefits of you know clean meat, and we kind of just unpacked what the ethical implications are of having a clean conscience when we think about our, our, our food system. I want to go back to something you said before about how when you're in the grocery store, it's decentralized. You don't really see how that food got there. And you yourself actually have an interesting upbringing where you were part of the food system. So can you describe that and, you know, your, your grandfather's life and how that kind of played into oh, you know, yeah, where yeah. you are now? So growing up, I was always really passionate about animals. Um, and yeah, so my grandfather owned a dairy farm um, and, you know, he treated his animals like like pets. Um, when I visited the farm, they still had, you know, he didn't have any animals anymore, but they still had the names of the cows over the stalls, um, which is interesting because now when you talk to most farmers, they'll say, well, we don't name these animals because they're not, you know, you don't want to get too close to them. You want to disconnect yourself from them. So, yeah, I grew up my, my whole childhood. I was very passionate about, about animals and, uh, is this where I should talk about kind of what my first aspirations were for a career maybe? or yeah, well, yeah. wait. Okay. So, yeah. So I was – at first I thought maybe I'd be a veterinarian because I thought that was a good way to, you know, help animals. Animals are sick and suffering. You can care for them. Um, that didn't end up happening. I'm not the most scientifically minded person, which is kind of ironic since I do a lot of work in like bioethics now. So <laughs> – but uh, – 
Yeah, so I ended up just, uh, I, I switched kind of into human services. I thought, you know, that was more of like helping humans, I guess. But um, eventually when I started taking some cla- classes in philosophy and religion, um, I made the connection between ethics, um, studying ethics and read some work in animal ethics. And so I instantly made that connection between concern for animals and being able to address it philosophically. And yeah, so it was just a, it really made sense. It was really like, it just connected for me. Seemed like the right fit at the right time. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And then how did you decide to, that you wanted to pursue graduate school thereafter? Yeah. So I met, um, I took a few classes from a professor at Northern Michigan University. We, we were, I ended up going into the philosophy program there. Um, very small university. We only had two professors in the philosophy department. Um, the professor that really influenced me the most was not somebody that works in applied ethics. Um, he works in existentialism. And so I think that really connected with me because he was emphasizing this, uh, like, you need to really, like, live what you believe. Like, what is it to live in the world and and who are you and, and how do you relate to the world? And I think uh, looking at, you know, concern for animals, it made sense that this was a way that just I was good at philosophy. I was good at ethics and I could make that connection between concern for animals. And he really pushed me to apply to conferences um, to try to get papers published. And I ended up uh, applying to grad school and Oregon State University was one of my top choices. Um, a lot of people here working in environmental ethics. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of how it happened. <laughs> and so uh, for some of the listeners who aren't familiar with the kind of grad school, like how you end up working with your advisor, can you describe your how you um, started working with Dr. Figueroa? Yeah, so, yeah, Rob Figueroa is uh, my advisor. He works uh his main area of focus is environmental justice. Uh, I met him my first term here. It was not an instant kind of connection, maybe. He he was just somebody that I knew well and I got to know, um, one of the first professors I really got to know. And the work that he did in environmental justice, uh, he had also done work in interspecies justice, which is a perspective on environmental justice in which you look not just on the so environmental justice looks at stuff like, uh, you know, environmental racism, um, looking into like how the decisions we make about the environment affect certain portions of the population disproportionately. Um, but interspecies justice takes that farther and asks how we should think about justice issues, not just in relation to the human, but also the non-human, so animals. Right. So that's yeah. your connection with this uh, paper that you just published, which was kind of how we determine which species are more valuable yeah. than, than other species and especially for the captive animals, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that paper um, addressed a little bit of what I already talked about, but it, so it looks into uh, how can we, uh, how should we think about human obligations to reduce suffering in wild animals and captive animals? Um, and so I looked into wild animals, but I made the case that the strongest uh area that we sh- we probably have obligation for is reducing the suffering not just for captive animals but for the suffering perpetuated by those captive animals yeah and if you're interested we have linked to the paper in our blog blog.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration 
And uh, so you are almost done with your master's then. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a second year, I guess, technically you would say I'm a two and a half year right now. So um, yeah, I'm in the process of completing my thesis, which is looking at uh, clean meat from a variety of perspectives. Um, the the It is looking at it from an environmental justice perspective, near species perspective, um, as well as kind of the this paper that I have a draft of up um, that you link to is, is a, going to become a section of my thesis. So yeah, I'm in the final process. Yeah. And that final process is always difficult, right? Everything but writing. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, yeah, exactly. Like I've done a lot of talks I've you know, like made a lot of connections with people and then it seems like I don't have time to get any writing done, you know? And it's like, <laughs> so I've, yeah. I've, I've often found it's, a, it's really nice to step back and take a look at the big picture. So I'd like to ask you, you know, if all the cards fall correctly, you know, assuming the industry moves ahead at its current steam, what do you foresee as, you know, the five, 10 year time horizon for, for clean meat? Uh, that's tough. Yeah. So I think the consumer acceptance studies that have been done have been very positive. Uh, there were a few people that did that kind of work at, at Maastricht University when I was there. Um, and yeah, they most people seem to be very accepting of the idea of clean meat. So the real hindrance right now is that unfortunately you have to think about it in terms of monetary considerations. Um, so while there are big investors such as Bill Gates, Richard Branson, Elon Musk, there's these big names that are investing into clean meat. Um, you're not going to get, uh, you're not going to get a, like the money that you need until you can show that you can produce a product that is more, that is going to be cheaper than the current uh, meat that we're, that we're purchasing. So that's a bit of a hindrance. Um, I do think that What's going to initially happen is you're going to have kind of high-end restaurants maybe serving this stuff. Um, for people that maybe have the ability to spend more on their food, it's going to be safer. It's going to They're going to be able to say, I can still eat this and, and not feel guilty about eating this, you know. And, like, I think that's going to be the first step. Uh, within, I would say, I hope within 10 years, processed meat is going to be something that's very readily available. And... In terms of the research into producing more complex structures, such as like like a, a steak is not something that's really being done yet, or like uh, you know complex muscular structure is not really possible at this point. It's still complex. <laughs> yeah, that research is still in its infancy too. So something like ground beef should be very easy. Um, most chicken should be pretty easy to to produce. Um, but yeah, a lot of seafood. Um, but I I'm hoping within ten years that processed meat will be the will be kind of eradicated in terms of it won't be coming from animal sources anymore and uh in your so you just had a trip to hampton creek foods yeah and yeah. um in your trip there did you bring up this like interspecies or uh captive animals and using these foods for um non-human animals and do you have any, did you like catch their drift and kind of what, how they were feeling about that? I've, I've talked to them about it a little bit. I didn't talk to them, to them about it this time. I talked to their, um, their cellular agriculture director when I was in the Netherlands about this. And I think, uh, really they're not focused on that. They, they want, they want the, they want first, I mean, obviously the human consumption is, is much bigger and that's, that's a bigger issue right now. So maybe the, 
non-human animal uh, consumption is not going to be their primary focus yet. But I did also speak to uh, one of the co-founders of Finless Foods, which is another biotech startup in San Francisco working specifically with seafood. So one of the statistics that I found in addition to, you know, the number of the, the caloric intake of cats in the United States is that in some countries, cats actually, house cats, consume more fish than humans do. So naturally, I was like, well, you guys are producing, your focus is going to be seafood. Like, what do you think about like cat food or like, you know, pet food? And they were very they're very interested in it as a possibility, but they also saw that, you know, maybe first we're going to be focusing on high end that it's going to be available to more people and then maybe the pet food. So it's probably going to be a secondary consideration for more, for most companies. So maybe not 10 years, but maybe 20 years. Or yeah, something. We'll, we'll see. see yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, I guess my, my last question before we get into our, our traditions is, uh, what was the future horizon for you look like in the next, you know, year, year or two? That's uh, that's always a difficult question, too. So I'm looking at grad schools. Um, I initially thought I was probably going to end up doing like a Ph.D. in philosophy. Um, that's not really something I'm that interested in anymore. It's just too confining. I'm more interested in interdisciplinary programs. So there are a number of Ph.D. programs uh, in the U.S. and abroad that focus on what's called STS or science, technology and society or science and technology in society. So it's people from a variety of backgrounds, history, philosophy, sociology, anthropology, looking at issues within science and technology. So that seems like a field that I'd be pretty happy in. Um, But I'm also considering uh, maybe, you know, possible careers outside of academia. Um, So if one of these startups is interested in hiring me, I'd definitely be down to be an ethics advisor for them. So we'll see. Yeah, that's very cool. All right, Adrian, traditions? Yes, let's get to it. Uh, So the first tradition we have is we always ask our guests for advice. So what is your advice and to whom is it for? Well, my advice is for, I guess I would say, it's for most of us, uh, for who I used to be, for um, the consumer that's going to the store and purchasing products, uh, not thinking about the kind of consequences that come with the purchasing of those products. And I just... My advice would be to, even though it's difficult and it's going to make, it's it's definitely going to bring more issues with your life. You're going to, your friends might be like, why are you so concerned about just what you eat or, you know. Um, But I think we should really ask ourselves if we are really comfortable with the decisions that we're making three times a day in in terms of the food that we consume. Um, I think that that has a much bigger impact than what we drive, Um, you know, the the energy we use when we're at home. Um, but it's also incredibly personal. So it's asking a lot. Um, but I would just ask people to ask if, to ask themselves if, uh, if that product really represents who they are. All right. And then our, our tradition, our last tradition is to, is to ask you for a song to provide, provide us with a song at your request that we can play, uh, to close out your show. And uh, what song did you pick and why? Yeah, so I picked um, a song called License to Kill. It was originally uh, written by Bob Dylan. Um, but since Tom Petty just passed away and he did a really nice cover of the song, um, I thought that would be a great kind of conclusion. It has a, I think, a sort of environmental message um, asking about the consequences of the decisions we make. And, yeah, I guess you can listen and figure out the rest for yourself. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, Bjorn, thanks so much. I know you're deep in the thesis finishing and yeah. uh, flying around the world and hearing about all kinds of clean meat, but you made time for us and we appreciate it so much. Well, thanks for having me. It was a great time. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this is Inspiration Dissemination. We're on every Sunday at 7 p.m. And we'll be back next week with another graduate student. But first, listen to uh, Tom Petty's version of License to Kill. You heard it on KBVR Corvallis. Man thinks, because he rules the earth, he can do as he pleases. And if things don't